12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, ordinarily, we sing a song at this point, and we're not this morning, and that's my fault. I did not submit enough songs, a series of sermons on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You'll both be hearing, you'll be hearing sermons from that series from both of us, and I invite you to turn with me to read Ephesians 3, the first 13 verses of Ephesians 3. This is page 1242 in the edition I have in front of me, and like I said, perhaps the same for you, Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you, will, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Several weeks ago, I needed to go somewhere from my office at the church on Lock Street. And I didn't have a vehicle because my wife dropped me off that morning, and so I took an Uber. And later that night, I discovered that I didn't have my car keys. I couldn't find them anywhere. I wasn't overly concerned. I thought, well, I probably left them on my desk in my office. After all, if you're 
Driving a car somewhere, you need your keys, but if somebody is taking you, you don't. And so the next morning, I got to my office. I surveyed the office, looked up my desk, and I couldn't find my car keys. Again, I wasn't overly worried. I thought, well, they're likely in my backpack, you know, which has a zillion different pockets. And when I have a chance to rifle through them, I'll probably find them. So I got to work. After a couple of hours, I received a phone call from an Uber driver who asked me whether I was missing car keys. I said, I am. And he said, well, I'm just a couple of blocks away from the church. I can drop them off. I said, that would be wonderful if you could. And he did, and I gave him a second tip, and I was very, very grateful to this Uber driver. Now, I suspect some of you here this morning are judging me. And you're saying, well, that's kind of irresponsible of you, Pastor Bill, not to keep track of your things. You mean you must have put the keys on the seat beside you or somewhere And you're not a very good example for the boys and girls of the Ancaster Church. We're trying to teach them to be responsible, and here you are clearly not. Well, I have a bit of a defense, and I don't know if it's convincing to you. I have a disorder of sorts. It's called ADHD. I wonder if you've ever heard of it. But people with this particular disorder are easily distracted and therefore easily forgetful, and so this is a frequent occurrence in my life. But one of the features of having ADHD is that you tend to interrupt people sometimes when you're talking to them, and people with uh, severe cases of this sometimes interrupt themselves. They get distracted in the course of what they are saying, and they pivot and talk about something else. And I want to submit to you this morning that perhaps the Apostle Paul had ADHD. Now, I realize that you think it's very convenient of me to say so because this makes the Apostle Paul and me quite alike, which we are not. But you will find places in Paul's writings where he's on one train of thought and suddenly he aborts that train of thought and he begins another without any explanation. And we find a classic instance of that in this very passage in Ephesians 3 where he begins with one thought, aborts it, and begins another. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, dash. And I call that the ADHD dash because Paul moves on to a seemingly completely different topic without any explanation or reason, and we're left to guess what has the mind of Paul Diverted. Why is Paul distracted that he abandons what he was saying to talk about something else instead? And I submit to you this morning that there are two things that divert Paul. And they are, first of all, the mystery revealed to him, and then secondly, the ministry assigned to him. These are the two reasons for Paul's distraction, for Paul's diversion, the mystery revealed to him, and then the ministry assigned to him. Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, dash. And as we're reading the Bible and as we're interpreting the Bible, we need to figure out where, you know, this excursion that Paul begins ends. He begins a kind of parenthetical comment And we need to ask ourselves, well, where does the parenthetical comment end, and where does Paul resume his earlier train of thought? Well, 
There are some who allege that it concludes at verse 13, where Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And the thought is this, that Paul mentions to the Ephesians that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus, but the Ephesians would have recognized that this is a play on words, and that Paul quite literally is a prisoner of Nero. He's a prisoner in Rome. And that Paul thought that his readers would have been distracted by this reality that he was a prisoner. They would have been concerned for him, concerned for his plight. They would have been worried and discouraged. And so he goes on a little excursion, and then he ends by saying, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I actually think there's a better case to be made that this parenthetical comment that Paul launches in verse 1 or verse 2 goes all the way to the end of the chapter because the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, begins again with this idea of Paul as a prisoner of the Lord. So he begins with a theme at the beginning of chapter 3, he abandons it and then resumes it at the beginning of chapter 4. Chapter 1 is about how God planned our salvation in Christ. Chapter 2 is about how God renews and reconciles us to each other and to God through Christ. Chapter 3 was going to be about how to live as a renewed and reconciled people. But Paul gets distracted and he doesn't get to that until chapter 4. What then has the Apostle Paul distracted? Well, I would submit to you this morning that there are two reasons for his diversion, both of which can be explained by mystery, which we'll get to in a moment. And the first is his awareness of his new identity. He is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And when Paul uses the word prisoner, he means it in a positive sense. He is now captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has surrendered his life to Christ. He is now a slave of Christ. He is in chains for Christ, and that's a good thing because Christ is the best possible master you could ever imagine. And for him, it's remarkable to think of this extraordinary transformation that has occurred in his life because it wasn't that long ago when he was Saul of Tarsus persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't that long ago when he was bent on destroying the church of Christ. And now look at what has happened in his life. He who was persecutor of Christ has now become prisoner for Christ Jesus. But I submit to you this morning, it isn't simply his new identity that has Paul so amazed he is diverted in his thinking. It's also his new calling he is prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Here is a person who was a bigoted Jew. Here is an individual who not so long ago was prejudicial towards Gentiles. He would not associate with Gentiles. He would not eat with Gentiles. He would not be in the presence of Gentiles. And now, look, he has a ministry to Gentiles. It wouldn't be. Entirely surprising if we read Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Jews. But he says, Paul, prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. 
And Paul, reflecting on this remarkable work of transformation that God has done in his life, is distracted. And he begins to talk about what it was that happened to him. He begins to explain this uh, transformation that has occurred, and the word that he uses repeatedly to describe it is mystery. We find in verse 3, 4, 6, 9, mystery. I wonder this morning whether you like mysteries. One of my favorite television programs is Unsolved Mysteries. I wonder if you've ever seen it. And my wife and I were watching an episode a couple of weeks ago, and she fell asleep, which is ordinarily what I do during a program like that, and she woke up towards the end and she said, well, what happened? And I said, it was very frustrating. They didn't solve the mystery. And that's always what happens with unsolved mysteries, and that's the frustrating element to the program because we want mysteries solved. Mysteries are enigmas. They're puzzles. And we want some kind of resolution. We want to see how it fits together. We want to see how it is explained. And you should know this morning that the word mystery in the Bible functions quite differently than this sense of mystery as puzzle or enigma. It has more the sense of something that's hidden and then over time disclosed. Something once concealed and over time revealed. Now, the best analogy that I could think of is perhaps an engagement ring. When a gentleman wants to propose to his girlfriend, he buys a ring, and he keeps the ring hidden, and he waits for the right moment to reveal the ring. I was talking with a gentleman a couple of weeks ago who bought an engagement ring and kept it hidden from his girlfriend for months, I think 10 months before he finally proposed to his girlfriend who became his wife. I think in my case, there were a matter of hours between buying the ring and proposing. I was so excited to reveal to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, what I had purchased. A mystery in the Bible is something that's hidden and then over time disclosed. And what is the mystery that Paul is talking about here? It's the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles together and through Christ to the Lord himself. It doesn't seem overly remarkable to us today, but you have to recall that this was, in the ancient world, a famous hostility, a famous enmity between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And if you were to go to the Jewish temple in the heart of Jerusalem, you would find a wall barring the entrance of Gentiles. There was essentially a sign on that wall that said, Gentiles keep out. And I already referred to the fact that Paul, as a devout Jew, would not eat with Gentiles, would not associate with Gentiles, would not be in the presence of Gentiles. This was a famous and ancient hostility. And the great mystery, once hidden, now revealed, is that these two people groups, this ancient hostility, would be resolved. This ancient enmity would be defeated, and Jews and Gentiles would be reconciled together. It was a secret. 
that was hidden in the heart of God, Paul says, already before the creation of the world. And it's as if Paul in this passage looks at the mystery first with a telescopic lens. He's looking back over the course of history, right to the point where he sees an eternity past this secret hidden in the heart of God. And over the course of history, it was as if God was lifting the engagement ring box. Over the course of history, he was revealing that this was his ultimate intention. We got a hint of it already in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, through you and through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We get many hints of this in the prophets of the Old Testament who Uh, foretell a time when the nations of the world would stream to Jerusalem. Bible scholars have sometimes suggested that Israel was plan A, and the church consisting of Gentiles was plan B. And that plan A on God's part failed, and so he went to plan B, to include Gentiles because the Jews had largely rejected him. And it's from this passage and many other passages that we identify that as a misinterpretation of Scripture, a theological error. It was God's intention all along. One day to include non-Jews and Gentiles into his family to transform a predominantly national family into a large international family. But Paul also views this mystery with a microscopic lens. If you see what he writes in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He uses The same prefix here with three different words, heirs, members, partakers, and the prefix means joined with or together with, so he says together heirs, together members, together partakers. It's quite fascinating. If you read through Paul's letter, sometimes he distinguishes Jews and Gentiles from the pronouns that he uses, you being Gentiles, we being Jews, and here it is together, 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 Jews and Gentiles. Paul is looking at this uh, mystery with a microscopic lens, and as he zeroes in with his microscopic lens, he focuses on Christ and calls this mystery in verse 4 the mystery of Christ. He is the one who makes it possible. Through his death on the cross, he breaks down the barriers. He redeemed, Paul says in Galatians 3, the curse of the law so that the blessings might come to the Gentiles. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, well, this is all very interesting, Pastor Bill, but what difference does it make for me? Well, I think here we have a key to interpreting Scripture. If the mystery that God had kept secret once hidden in his heart, then over time revealed in the Old Testament to disclose Christ as the one through whom people would be reconciled to each other and then these people to God himself, then 
we have to understand that the whole story is about Christ. And we should go to Scripture, as one scholar put it, the way that the shepherds outside of Bethlehem went to Bethlehem looking for Christ in order to worship him. And when we're reading the Bible, it doesn't matter whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, we are looking for Christ. And over the course of the revelation of Scripture, Christ is revealed as our shepherd, as our rock, as our king, as our Lord, as our Savior. We are introduced over Old Testament and New Testament to the work that Jesus did, the great sacrifice he made on the cross. And it's the key, as I said, to interpreting Scripture. Just think of some familiar passages. Uh, The story of David and Goliath, that's a story with which most of us, I suspect, would be familiar. What's the point of the story? Well, we're, we're inclined to read through the story of David and Goliath and say, well, you know, David is the courageous one. We need to be courageous like David. We need to find the giants in our lives and defeat them. When the primary meaning of the story is to recognize that Jesus is our David, who fights on our behalf, who destroys the evil one, and we enjoy the victory. What's the meaning of the story of Daniel and the lion's den? Well, you know, Daniel was not willing to compromise on his faith. We should be people who do not compromise, are prepared to suffer the consequences for not compromising. When the story is meant first and foremost to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, like Daniel, was not lowered into a den of lions, but was lowered into the the grave, the tomb. And then, like Daniel, was elevated from that tomb and given a position of honor at the right hand of the king to rule the world, as it were. And you see, it's a key to interpreting the Bible, but perhaps more importantly, it's a key to understanding the gospel. Because if the story of David and Goliath and the story of Daniel and the lion's den is simply to impart some kind of moral lesson about how we need to be brave and courageous and fight our enemies, you and I would all feel absolutely defeated by that message. You and I, with the resources that we have, we cannot possibly be like David or like Daniel. We would falter. We will fail. We fail every single day with far less challenges than David faced or Daniel faced. But you see, if we interpret that correctly, first and foremost in terms of Christ, and see that Christ is my great David, he is my great Daniel, he is greater than David, greater than Daniel, and his resources by his Spirit are now available to me, then we can, relying on him and not on our own resources, be a kind of David and a kind of Daniel. Well, Paul is distracted from what he was going to say, first of all, by this mystery, the great transformation that has occurred in world history, of which he is a part, Jews and Gentiles, being reconciled together. 
but he's also distracted by the ministry that is assigned to him. Verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was a bigoted Jew, prejudiced against the Gentiles, the least likely to be chosen to be ambassador for the Gentiles. But God has entrusted him this very treasure, and Paul is overwhelmed, and he can't keep quiet, and he's going to go far and wide to preach this gospel to whosoever. Doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what your ancestry is, what the color of your skin is. He's going to preach this gospel far and wide. Notice what he says about the church, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now the word manifold there was used of garments and curtains that were vibrant, beautiful, multicolored. We could say the multicolored wisdom of God. It's going to be made known. Now, it's a fact of the world in which we live that everything falls apart. Cars fall apart. People fall apart. Relationships fall apart. Everything is prone to falling apart. But the multicolored wisdom of God is that God is bringing things together reconciling enemies, bringing together those who were estranged, repairing what is broken. And he's going to keep doing that work until Jesus returns and the new creation is launched in which everything will once again function in complete harmony. Where there will be no suffering, no sickness, no sin, no sorrow, no injustice of any sort. Perfect harmony, perfect reconciliation, full restoration, complete renovation of all that is broken in creation. And Paul here is essentially saying that the church is God's pilot project for the whole restored cosmos. He's going to restore and renovate everything, and you begin to see that project underway in the church where you find broken people restored, broken relationships mended, hostilities resolved, estranged parties reconciled together. And who's going to see this all? This is the most striking thing, isn't it? Verse 10 so that through the church the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers 
and authorities in the heavenly places to angels. And if you read the scholarship, if you read the commentaries, you will discover a massive debate about whether these are good angels or bad angels. What is the referent here for these terms? I'm not inclined to choose. It's to angels in general. The church is going to reveal the multicolored wisdom of God whereby the broken are mended and it's going to be revealed to the rulers and authorities, the angels, the powers and principalities. There was a preacher of a previous century by the name of Alexander White. And in one place, Alexander White says, when I die and go to heaven, there are two people that I want to meet and talk with. The first is the Lord Jesus. No big surprise there. But he said, the second person I want to meet is the angel who visited Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus, immediately prior to his death on the cross, suffered immensely in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling with the cup that the Father had given him, sweating as it were, drops of blood in anguish, his soul being deeply sorrowful and troubled. And an angel came, the text says, Luke's gospel, to strengthen him. And Alexander White says, I want to ask the angel, what did you see in the Garden of Gethsemane? And what did you conclude, given what you saw? Because it would have seemed to this angel that God loved you and me more than his son. That would have been a legit conclusion. It would have seemed as if Jesus loved you and me more than himself. And it would have seemed as if the Son of God in that moment did not want to be rescued, did not want to escape from his sufferings, but that he would redeem people, sinners like you and me, precisely through his suffering and anguish. So that the angel comes to him, perhaps thinking he's going to rescue Christ, and Jesus saying, this is the course I'm following. This is the path on which the Father has put me to ensure that sinners like you and me can be saved. And that angel must have been amazed beyond belief. And God wants to amaze the angels again. This time through the church, so that it's the church that showcases his multicolored wisdom. It's the church where you see the ancient hostilities resolved, where people coming together, relationships mended. It's in the church where you find 
the population that will one day inhabit the new creation, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, of every background, of every race, of every ancestry, ethnicity. So when the angels look at the church, they are amazed. I don't know how you feel about that this morning, but it stings me. It's a little bit like uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, this beautiful chapter about love, which so many select for a wedding text. And... But if you read 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of 1 First, uh, Corinthians, I think the Corinthians would have heard that message as anything but this beautiful chapter on love. They would have felt stung by it. 1 Corinthians 13 would have hurt the Corinthians in the same way that I feel hurt by this passage, and perhaps you do too, because to what extent is the church showcasing the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God? To what extent is the church the place where broken relationships are mended? And we have to persevere, don't we? Confessing our sins, trusting in God's goodness and grace, relying on the resources of Christ, repenting in some cases, resolving to be faithful disciples. It's a small beginning, isn't it, to use the language of the catechism, of the obedience that God requires of us. In the end, to be honest, I'm not certain that the Apostle Paul had ADHD, It is obvious to me that for him the gospel was so startling and so amazing. Any thought to it was distracting for him. And he would lose his train of thought and think about something else. And my open prayer this morning is that the gospel and the transformation that God does in our lives and in the lives of others would be so amazing for us that it made, makes it difficult for us to keep our train of thought. May God give us all gospel ADHD. Let's respond in song. We're going to sing about the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is the protagonist in the story of Scripture. Let us of Christ our Lord and Savior sing. Hymn 23 will stand to sing all the stanzas.